self-esteem, where once again, I'm having interesting conversations about books with some very interesting people. My guests in the studio this week are two award-winning writers who are both playwrights and fiction writers. Megan Gale Coles is an award-winning playwright and fiction writer. Her short story collection, Eating Habits of the Chronically Lonesome, received a Relit Award, a Winterset Award, and the Margaret and John Savage First Book Award. Robert Schaaf is probably best known to many people as a playwright. He's a winner of the Governor General's Award for English Language Drama, and more recently, he's emerged onto the scene as a writer of fiction as well with his short story collection, Two Man Tent, having been nominated for the Winterset Award. Robert has most recently been nominated for the Artist of the Year Award for Arts NL for 2016. So as you can see, these are a couple of very talented people, and our conversation was very wide-ranging, talking about books, about theater, about what sustains the literary community here in Newfoundland, and so much more. And I'm so glad you're going to join us for it. Tell me about something you've read lately, or more than one thing you've read lately, that you're really excited about, or really enjoyed. The last thing that I read that I really loved um, was that uh, new George Saunders novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. Oh, okay. Have you read that? No, but I've heard about it. It's it's on the very, very long list of books yeah, I want to get to. It's incredible. Time. I I dove on it, I think the week it came out, and as soon as I, I just heard over Christmas that he was releasing it. And uh I've read a bunch of his short stories and loved him. Mm-hmm. And uh and so I dove on this book when I was in California. I made a special trip to go buy it. Uh-huh. And I read it I you know, almost most of it. I think I poured through most of it by the time I actually got back to Canada. And uh, I just loved it. He has a an incredible ability to play with um, form, and uh, he's so quirky. But it never, it's never at the sacrifice for real kind of authentic heart. And I just find his work so moving, but also uh, a real riot to mm-hmm. read. Anyway, I just love that book. So what is it like? Give me a thumbnail for what it's about, because it's one where I, I know I've read a bit about it and sure. thought that sounds good. It's, uh, it's his first novel. Uh-huh. It's uh, uh, the basic premise is he, and he, I've, I've read an interview uh, since where he talked about where this idea came from, but uh, Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, died, I believe, when he was seven or nine. I forget the history. Uh, and the night before, he died of, uh, of pneumonia or some kind of uh, communicable disease. And the night before he passed away, uh, Lincoln and his wife had a party. And uh, and the son was sick, and they questioned whether or not they should cancel the party. And they decided to go ahead with this kind of big party. Um, and uh, the kid was upstairs in bed sick, and the next day he passed away. Right. And uh, so that's the kind of starting point that Saunders jumps off of. And, and, and the, the, the whole novel takes place in the Bardo, which is in, in um, uh, Buddhist teachings is the... Um, is essentially um, limbo, oh, okay, uh, purgatory, and so all of these spirits, mm-hmm. you, spirits you 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 meet and are introduced to uh, through the novel are in purgatory. Although their conception of where they are is not fully clear, they don't know fully that they're dead. They don't know. They just you know, for example, they keep referring to this thing called the sick box that the reader becomes very. Uh, aware very early in the book that it's actually the coffin and right. they return to their sick box in the evening to, to sleep uh-huh. and, um, and and the way he structures the book uh, he has basically two ways of structuring it most of the chapters are done almost like a play there are chunks of dialogue that are written from character perspectives but the character tags are at the end so you'll read a paragraph and then find out who's saying that oh, paragraph at the end yeah. um, so that's mostly how the book is written and then uh, every now and then he'll throw in a, a chapter that's completely comprised of uh, either true or made up I think a lot of them are made up citations from history uh-huh. uh, from real or fictional books that uh-huh. he has kind of created this kind of so and when he's talking about Lincoln there's a chapter like that for example he's talking about Lincoln and he has three or four citations in a row like he had the most beautiful brown eyes and look at the citation next one is he had large brown eyes and citation next one is he had big beautiful blue eyes and like <laughs> some contradictory information yeah. from all these these uh, these um, I think mostly uh, full made up citations. And so it creates this, the whole effect is he creates this, um, again, rather playful, uh, always surprising um, kind of uh, world 
mostly told from the perspective of people who aren't uh, aren't effectively involved in the emotional drama. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not. For example, they're not Lincoln. Every now and then you hear from Willie, his right. son, but mostly they're the spirits who are in the in the barrow with the son. And Lincoln, uh, famously, after Willie died, and this is true, would come for many many days after the the, the child is put in the crypt. And, and would come and would sit with the coffin and would hold the child and right. and just had a really, really hard time with his grief. Uh, and so the book is about grief and about overcoming grief. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, uh, these characters kind of encountering this man, they don't know that he's the president. They don't know what status he right, has in the world, yeah. but they encounter, he encounters this tall, they all encounter this tall man who's coming to to be with this boy and the boy can't communicate with him of course and so it's this beautiful kind of playful very very funny but also incredibly sad kind of meditation on grief and loss uh, and he's like the only person in the world I know who could write a book like that that's so stylistically playful and fun but at the same time uh, made me cry several times when I was reading it so true and beautiful and uh, so that's the last thing I just poured through that book I'm going to read it again wonderful. and I've already it's one of those books like I, I think I had it I read it I had it read for two days and then I gave it to somebody who, you know, a friend of mine who experienced the loss over the last right. couple of years. I said, you, 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 when you're ready, you should read this book because it's an, an incredible piece. But, uh, so now I have to buy it again and read it myself. <laughs> and but I would the, highly recommend it. It's, that is yeah. the ultimate test of loving a book is wanting to pass it wanting on. Wanting to pass people. it on, yeah. And I really did with that one. And uh, I've been talking about it endlessly to people. Probably to you too. Or talk to you about it. Yeah, that's Meg Cole's nodding. Yes. Me. Yes. All right. We're on the radio. Yes. Nodding on radio. We'll discuss this. I still find it very interesting, though. The um, book. The book. I haven't yeah. read it. Yeah. yeah. In fact, because I have stacks and stacks of books currently. Yeah, we all do. School. Yes. In the two yeah. reviews. Um, and I'm kind of getting through the ones in order of priority right now. Currently, I took a reading uh, hiatus while I was writing the first draft of the novel. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I banned all books from wow. my shelf. Uh-huh. So you have to you have to take a hiatus from reading when you're writing? No, I read nonfiction and poetry. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't read another novel. But I didn't novel read novel. any fiction. Mm-hmm. I did sneak a couple books in there, but anything that felt like it was potentially going to lead to bleed over because it all I'm yeah, like yeah, absorb sure, yeah, yeah. I absorb information yeah. and I wouldn't want to accidentally absorb something that was true. Like, I, yeah. I've done that sometimes too, particularly not I don't think I could could ban fiction altogether, but not reading like in the same genre that I'm writing. Like I write mostly yeah. historical fiction, so I'll like not read historical fiction sometimes while yeah, I'm yeah. drafting a novel. So I, yeah, I get that. That's true. I guess I've never read a play never been reading plays when I'm the exceptions plays. to that rule though were books that I had already read. So I reread a lot of Vonnegut, and I I read uh, 100 Years of Solitude almost Mm. every year, and I actually reread A Fine Balance a lot, too. People are often surprised by that. Uh, So I figured all of those books were already in there, Mm -hmm. so I could just put them back in there. Why are people surprised that you read A Fine Balance? over again because it's large it's I suppose it's, it's really com- a commitment like when I say yeah. I reread A Breakfast of Champions almost yeah. every year too no one because no one even it's like yeah Breakfast of Champions it's like what 70,000 words it's not you yeah. can read that in, in a sitting yeah, easily exactly, especially yeah. if you know what's coming sure, right yeah. but, but it's a, a fine, commitment to reread A Fine Balance every year time wise anyway yeah, and it's an emotional Yes, it is. Too, yeah. Right? Like, true, the, yeah. what you go yeah. through, even as a reader, is really like a journey. Oh, yeah. Of like, I only read that book once, but uh, that's, yeah, true. that's an emotional book. Those are not the books that I was going to talk about. Oh, yeah, please. so what? Well, that's okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> like our kind of book tangent. Uh, so that's okay. What are the books that you've, or what have you been reading lately that you're um, excited about? I, re- I, I read Sister Outsider for the first time in my life as a a book club mm. book. I mean, oh, okay. I mean this intersectional feminist. Um, I know a lot of people are in that book, book club. Book club. <laughs> oh, that sounds and great. A lot of people are talking about that book, particularly in that book club. It was yeah. very moving, yeah, and yeah. it was something that uh, I really related to and connected with as a person uh, who's kind of lived a very isolated, rural uh, Newfoundland a background whereby, and you wouldn't necessarily think that an African American lesbian woman and myself would have a lot of the same things mm-hmm. or uh, experiences in life, mm-hmm. but that was not the case. Like oppression, and the whole point of the intersectional book club is that we recognize how we are similar and how we are oppressed and how uh-huh. we are different, and try to come up with like creative solutions 
and open up like uh, a channel of dialogue around those similarities and um, you know on similarities I suppose mm-hmm. uh, differences so this book was called what did you say Sister Outsider Sister Outsider oh, I've not heard of this one it's, so who's it by Lord is her name and she's like a very uh, she's no longer with us unfortunately the book was originally published in the 70s which was another thing that I was skeptical of my uh, very good friend Andrea Callanan was the person who chose the reading list for uh-huh. the book club. Okay. So just based on the fact that it, I was concerned that it would be dated, uh, I had went into reading it as kind of skeptically. Like mm-hmm. I, I thought that potentially what, uh, or I suppose in many ways I was hoping what was applicable to mm-hmm. her struggle in the 70s. Because um, the woman was born in the 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was hoping we had made more progress in that time. Yeah. Um so it was like encouraging to know that our experiences were kind of uh, similar in that it gives you, makes you feel less alone in the world, but also a little bit discouraging to yeah. know that we're still having them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was a really, really beautiful book. And she's a poet, I think, uh, primarily and an essayist, the author. So there's a lot of poetic kind of. Uh, creative nonfiction, and I, I think it's creative nonfiction before creative nonfiction was really a thing. Actually, like I think before it was a category. Yeah, people were sure still writing it before it was a label. Yeah, fit nonfiction. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's a really, really lovely read, and it's really touching. And she discusses things like our relationships with our mothers, which is something that I think has kind of been. Uh, there are a lot of father-son stories like we encounter those stories a lot yeah. in our um, arts and culture mm-hmm. atmosphere but I don't think we encounter as many stories examining the mother-daughter relationship and how that can be impacted by the way that we struggle absolutely in, in life yeah. uh, so that was really wonderful and I'm also um, reading over and over uh, Danica Kelly's uh, poetry collection called bestiary i'm not going to get into why the poems are amazing again uh andrea gift like loaned me this and now i guess she's never getting that back. <laughs> <laughs> i will how buy her a new copy it is a danger of loaning books that dangerous. people are going to fall in love with them and she knows, knows she knows that yeah. sometimes things don't return <laughs> i mean in the same like i'll get her a new one yeah. and she'll have the fresh copy instead of yeah. the one that i've ruined um, but I, it's a wonderful collection of poems and I would recommend it to anybody even people who wouldn't consider themselves traditional poetry readers of poetry mm-hmm. well we were talking about this recently was it mm-hmm. you that was talking about this I, I that, talking that my, about my, my uh, uh, reading habits with poetry are embarrassingly scant I haven't read mm-hmm. much poetry but I would love to actually get a read. I would love to get a reading list from somebody maybe I should ask <laughs> Andrea because I would yeah, love yeah, to get a reading list yeah yeah she would be the person for that and to dig into it because I don't know I, don't, I actually don't know where to start I know so little about the form yeah. it's so funny I was uh, I, if you're out there sir this is for you it's so <laughs> funny a couple of years ago I was uh, I was writer of residence at Mon and you know we put out this call to kind of bring in manuscripts and you kind of read manuscripts and stuff and so I was reading a lot of stuff and I was just starting to work on fiction and so I felt a little out of my element to even offer advice on fiction but I was able to do that but there was a guy who came in with uh, a manuscript and he left it on my desk and I said okay well I'll read it this week and get back to you and as soon as he left I realized it was poetry and I just I just froze and I didn't I was so, I'm so, I have such a huge uh, lack of knowledge when it comes to that form of writing uh, that I immediately um, called him up or wrote him whatever his contact was. And I said, I I have to tell you, I have no, I have nothing to offer you. And he came back and he got quite upset with me because he assumed that I was... I didn't like the book and I was trying Aww. to weasel out of giving him yeah. some comments but I was like, like no actually I, like, <laughs> not you might as well expertise. ask me about astrophysics I actually know nothing about it and I think people are sometimes surprised by um, surprised by that if you're a writer well certainly you know about but yeah. the, the the distance between um, genres with yes. writing is so vast yeah. it's so vast yeah, I, and I, I feel that poetry and playwriting are probably on, in many ways even though there's a lot of great poetic playwriting that I love and I've done some of it I guess myself but I, as forms and in terms of the goal and, 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 and process and purpose of the writing it feels very uh, often diametrically opposed yeah. 
poems, so yeah. I did a reading challenge a couple of years ago where, because I'm the same way with poetry, like I just, I love the idea of poetry, mm-hmm. and I love individual poems, but I very rarely pick up a book of poetry to read it. So I did this challenge where I would read one book of poetry every month, and take recommendations from friends who did read poetry, mm-hmm. and it was great and wonderful, and then when the year was over, I didn't keep doing it, like I yeah. kind of dropped it again, yeah. which was a shame. So I'm going to yeah. look up that one that you, I you think, mentioned. I uh, think reading all the different forms actually will inform our diction choice and oh, how yeah. it like, sure. uses yeah. different muscles in the brain mm-hmm. because like really the poets have like a very strong economy of words because they, they have do. so yes. few right mm-hmm. so yeah. they are very and in that precise regard playwriting they share that shares yes. a lot they, with they, so they, they have that in common mm-hmm. so like your diction choice is paramount in fiction you have this whole other thing happening where you have space and time and like a, a different kind of breath because you can go internal and external mm-hmm. like the narrator mm-hmm. kind of moves the story along uh, however they choose whereas the other forms demand very different things mm-hmm. yes uh, if you were gonna uh, I can't not mention if you were going to uh, start reading poems because I know a lot of people are intimidated by the by the form, yes and don't know which, where to start and so they don't want to start talking about it but I don't I don't think that's actually very beneficial to any of us to be intimidated to discuss something mm-hmm. I mean how will we ever come together if we oh, ever easier have... said than done <laughs> by the poems um, but Ocean Vong <laughs> is uh, is like Maybe my favorite uh, poet of recent discovery, hmm. him and uh, Danica Kelly. Cool. Not excluding okay. like my local favorites, of course. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. That does lead into, by the way, I was going to oh, ask people books. also local books. What have you either read or are looking at reading by local authors that that you're interested in and want to talk about? I uh, was at Eva Crocker's book launch oh, yeah, uh, yes. two weeks ago, so she's got a she's new a uh, short story yes. collection, so that's yeah. on my bedside table. Bridget Canning's yes. first yes. novel yes. just right. came out. Yeah. I am really excited. I'm looking forward to picking that up and diving in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth De Mariafi also has her second novel coming out, I yes. think, in early 2018. Mm-hmm. And you could literally, you could literally have a, a full year of just reading Newfoundland books. Yeah, absolutely, it's unreal. It just mm-hmm. seems to be getting more and more solid, and right. you know, and diverse in yes. offering. It's yeah. incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. The, the the publication list, just based on what I know from talking to my friends of the novels that are coming out in the next eighteen months, are really yeah. fantastic. Oh yeah. I mean, Eva's and Bridget's are here. Yeah. So that's yes. something people can go Do out know, yeah. and yeah. get their hands yeah. on, like, oh, currently. Yes. Um, and Maggie Burton has a chat book. She's an emerging poet. She is, yeah. also te- She's a very talented musician. Mm. Uh, her chat book is being uh, released. I was at Piper's Frith with her last fall. Oh. Yes. And uh, she was reading some of her poetry, and I loved it. That was beautiful. I, yeah, she has one called Man Rolled Smokes. Oh, great title. Oh, I am so excited about the Bridget Canning one, which yeah. I read because a couple of years ago, I was the judge for the Percy Jane's first novel uh-huh. award. And it was definitely the hardest writing-related job mm-hmm. I've ever done. Like, I worked for that bit of money they give you for that because there were so many good novels. Mm-hmm. And there was... Um, a couple of them are already out, like Glenn Deere's book, uh, The Money Shot. Was one. Mm-hmm. But in the end, and I, I've no shame about saying this because it's past the judging and I've told both these people... I had Sharon Bala's book, which is not yet out, but it's mm. coming out, I think, later this year or next year, mm-hmm. and Bridget Canning's. And it was, I went back and forth <laughs> between those two. They were both two. so fantastic. Yeah, and being a jury is so hard. It is hard. So well, hard. And this, the Percy James is yeah. terrible because you're not on a jury. It's a solo. Oh, so really? You had to do it yourself? It's one judge, and you didn't even have another oh, person to bounce it off wow. of and say, yeah, and this is yeah, one of the yeah. recommendations. I came back to Arts and Letters and said, you need at least you two judges least for this, because people. I feel like this was too heavy yeah. a decision for yeah. one person to make. But and that's where the discoveries happen books. when people actually, I mean, people get a little bit of a taste of it when they listen to the juries, uh, you know, the discussions on Canada Reads. Yes, but, yeah. but those kind of discussions that happen in juries are really... I've had my opinions on books completely turned around when yes. a certain piece of context would be dropped to the table mm-hmm. by another jury member. My God, I've not had my opinion turned <laughs> <around>. <laughs> Maybe your opinion is just a little too entrenched well, to be turned Well, that's just why I must be on a jury with others. Yeah. yeah that's my impression so. of the book after I read it does not really stray too far 
from where my impression was. But it's, for me, for me, it's it, it, it for me the, the the way the jury thing works and what's really really interesting is that it's not that my opinion it's not that a book that I didn't like well all of a sudden I will love it. It's that it, in terms of the as you're forced to ranking these books mm-hmm. and putting them in some sort of order so you can make sense of a shortlist and then a winner that becomes complicated. And what I thought I knew I suddenly don't know mm-hmm. when context is given to a piece and you know I sat on a jury. Uh, last year for example and there was one person there was three of us on this jury and this one person kept coming back to this play and saying you know there are there are other there are other plays here that we all like uniformly like more than this play but this writer is doing something that nobody else of the entire uh, in the entire uh, category is trying to do they're, yeah. they're actually smashing a wall with it and and, and it, we kept coming back to that and, and 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 that should be recognized and all of us are kind of agreeing that, that should be recognized and so that push that book very strongly mm. into a short list and we all felt really good about that but so it I find those conversations really really fascinating and interesting and I love sitting on juries, but they're really hard. Yeah, they are. They're hard. And the, I think the other thing that's good if you're a writer yourself, which you're going to be if you're invited to sit on that jury, is that it does help you realize how arbitrary the whole process totally. is. And yeah. later when your book yeah. is the one up for an award yeah. and does or doesn't get it, you realize it could have so easily gone the other way. Totally. Because, I mean, totally. you know, well, as I said, the two that I was left with at the end of that process are both fantastic yeah. books. That's why I'm so excited about about reading Bridget's book in its, in its final form. And the Eva Crocker one, I just uh, actually just gave to my daughter for her 17th birthday as the first sort of grown-up non-YA book that uh-huh, I've given yeah, her. Yeah. And I'm like, see how you like this. See what you think. Of this. Oh, I think uh, she's got the right stuff. Oh yeah, Ms. yeah. Cracker, what I've read but... of hers, it's fantastic. Oh, what yeah. about you, Robert? What's what's out locally? That, uh, uh... All of those things. I have yet to read. Uh, I have yet to read uh, Lisa's book, Flannery, from last year. Uh, I have yet to read Paul Rowe's book. So mm-hmm. just bet me in the weaker set. So I got to <laughs> read that one. <laughs> I love you, Paul. You're awesome. Um, so I, yeah. So those are, and you know, I'm. I, if I had to be honest about the book that I'm most excited about, it's not even, it's not even gone to the publisher yet. It's. I'm not saying she's sitting right here, but Meg's book, Meg's book, her first novel that she's writing. I'm super excited. That about is that. exciting. Can you tell us anything about mm. it? It's got the it? best title. Can you say the title? Say the title. I can say the title. <laughs> it's called Small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club. Oh, that is a wonderful title. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to that. There's this uh, in certain gun clubs in certain countries that will remain nameless. <laughs> Use your imagination. There is a practice of uh, putting small game into a pen and shooting them. It is the most unsportsmanlike. Wow. And I, I'm now sorry this is a podcast because it's not capturing our yeah, facial yeah, expressions. Yeah. But yeah. It, it is meant entirely in this very reckless, malicious manner. Like, yeah. it's very similar to the concept of shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think, like, in certain uh, island cultures, we're very geographically isolated. And when there is a situation where... Um, women greatly outnumber men the behavior towards women you would think that the it would be a better quality of life for women in um geographical instances where the they outnumber men but it's not the case it's the in fact the uh, exact opposite so i suppose uh, the title is in some in some way referencing a kind of aggressive misogyny that i've huh. seen growing mm-hmm. in our city and our province Oh, that is interesting. Aggressive misogyny. Is there any other kind? <laughs> well, there's a con- concealed misogyny. True, true. Yeah. I say that in half in jest, yeah. of course. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but I think, uh, unfortunately, the kind of misogyny, the things that I heard on the wharf growing up, mm. mm-hmm. which we take as just people talking, like that's just how people talk, Locker room so talk. I was going to say, that's just locker room that's talk. Just, the great just, full quote of the Men being men or boys being yeah. boys mm-hmm. is actually really unfortunate because I think it uh, steals away your girlhood hearing mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. becoming uh, or becoming aware or recognizing that there is this other thing being spoken uh, just beyond you yeah. that you're never really like a part of, but yeah, yeah. it. Uh, really very much revolves around you. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, lots of that. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's funny. And when is it coming out? Yeah, when is it coming out? When I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's when everything is coming Next out. Next year, <laughs> when right? You're done. Yeah, yeah. Next year. Or actually, uh, in my experience, slightly before you're done is when everything yeah, comes exactly. out because you never really Okay, when I'm done is a really ridiculous thing to say, especially given that there are three writers in this room. <laughs> We're never done. Yes, like, you're never done. Not, when, well, when you're ready the, to let it go. This is the thing, you know, this is the interesting thing that I found when, you know, and I said this to a couple people that, you know, writing that book and releasing that book, unlike all the plays and stuff I've written, which get the chance to, and I've gone back to plays after they've been published and, and reworked them for productions. Oh, yeah. And so the, the text is still alive and I can refine and refine mm-hmm. and refine. Yeah. And now that damn thing, can I say damn yes, thing is out there that. in the world. And it, you know, and I, I honestly have trouble. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. I, say I'm, it. I'm very proud of my book. I'm very proud of my book. But I honestly have trouble now when I have to go find a piece to read from it. Yes. Because all I see are, all I see are errors. All yeah. I see are deficits in the book mm-hmm. that I want to fix. And of course, I, I can't come back to fix it. And so I, I find myself literally editing on the fly. Yeah. I, do, like, I don't know if anyone else does that. Like, oh, yeah. Like, cutting never, sentences out as I'm reading. I've I never done a reading and not edited Oh, as good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, I also yeah. tailor for the room. So sometimes mm-hmm. I do not, like, drop all of the F-bombs depending <laughs> on how much gray hair is in the room. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. that's that was uh, surpri- I don't know why that was surprising to me, but it was very surprising to me because mm. I, th- I guess I worked on it for so long. I thought, okay, well, this is done now and it's there. Mm. But uh, yeah, then, of course, hard. you have to live with it and encounter it again mm-hmm. as you do these readings and these these kind of promotional events. So anyway, I actually think that's really healthy as a writer. If you were reading something that you wrote two years earlier, because technically, like. Usually the the publication process is such that you wrote it a while ago. Yes. By the yeah, time it's already it's old by the time yes. you're reading it. If yeah. you are still think that is the best you can do and you mm-hmm. haven't like evolved further beyond that by the time you're reading it, then there's something very arrogant about that attitude toward your own work. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you I should always right. strive to improve upon the quality of your writing. If you're satisfied, then you're stagnant. <laughs> <laughs> that is so. So true. That is so true. But that's a really interesting point too. And you know, for both of you, of course, I, I think of you as playwrights, who, but you're also as fiction writers. Yeah, we are. Um, that, yeah. And th- that point that, that a play is sort of always a living thing because you can't always mm-hmm. go back to it in future productions. Whereas, you know, a collection of short stories or a novel is more of a static, a fixed thing. I don't. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Ming? I mean, after the plays are published, you can only then rewrite. For new publications, so you can edit that script. But when it go, it kind of goes out into the world. The yeah. pu- but it's a totally different art form in that it it's is. always changing without us when we're not yes, even yeah, present. Yeah. Well, that, so that's what I think would be terrifying about it. Right, about writing plays that you're letting go and letting other people do things with them. Like that's scary to me. And they don't always abide by what you've written there. Like I, for one, put in a lot of stage directions because I'm offering the director my opinion, whether or not the director chooses to uh, <laughs> even acknowledge that I have one is kind of not really up to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you go and see it somewhere else, and you yeah. go, well, that's not what I was talking about. But <laughs> works for you. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. that must so be very different. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure. Uh, to some degree, like short stories, especially people are reading them in sections and they're interpreted based on their own emotional mm-hmm. intelligence level and stuff like that. So there's only so much control you can ever have yeah. when people are meeting in art form. Well, I mean, we all have. And they're not going to be sorry. No, they're not going to be swayed either. Like you can you can come into a room, you can come into a room having a bad day and encounter a play, but you're encountering that play with. A hundred, two hundred, a thousand other people, yeah. and what's happening collectively in that room changes everybody in that room for the better or the worse. You know, uh, you're you're going to be altered by what's happening in the room and but collective effervescence. Exactly, <laughs> but a book is not like that. Yeah, uh, no. you know, it's a solitary experience that you're having. Yeah, that's so. what I was going to say. Like, I mean, we all have this thing where you know what you write is going to be changed by what the reader brings to it. But at the same time, that happens when the reader reads the book in another room and I don't have to know about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a play, you put it out there and then the director and the actors and the audience bring something to it and you may very well be sitting there watch, watching that happen. Oh, and the <laughs> audience tells you? 
What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they'll bring to it. Like, after, if you're present, they'll come out. It's one of the things I tell my students all the time. If an audience member comes up to you and says, I love how you tied together all that, and it's not something you actually did, you uh-huh. go, yes, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Take credit. Take credit. For a couple of reasons. You not take credit. Just, just you take credit. Thank you. For a couple of reasons. One, you did do it, whether or not you realized you did it or not. Yeah. You did do it, and that person saw it. And the second reason, like, you don't want to make someone feel dumb. They yes, feel like they've yeah. seen something in your work. Yeah, you're not going to say, no, that was the director. No, that I was, or yeah. I didn't intend that. Yeah. Why did you think that? Yeah. I mean, it makes everyone feel bad. You feel bad. They feel bad. Oh, I was mostly like <laughs> taking a, taking the piss. I don't know if you're allowed to say piss on this podcast. You can, yes, you can. Uh, I was mostly taking You can the, now. Wow. <laughs> this is only my third Trudy. one. I've aired. So, so the rules are Yeah, the rules are evolving. It's changing okay. currently as I speak. Fantastic. But um, I was mostly taking the piss out, like, occasionally... With when you release anything into the world, and this I've gotten this same reaction from people who read Eating Habits. They come up and they tell you what they liked, and if you're a very open kind of author, which I am, they also feel free to tell you what didn't work yes, for them. Yeah. Um, so that's always really interesting, like as a yeah. book person, yeah. to hear what what story really did not mm-hmm. uh, turn them on. Yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I must project an air of fragility because no one ever does that with me. <laughs> I was thinking about it today I as I was waiting. I think you maybe are also a dude that could. I was Quite actually possibly. thinking the most yeah. people Quite that possibly. want to tell me what didn't work for them are dudes. Are dudes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually don't get a lot of dudes even reading my books, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite possibly. Yeah. That could Quite be. Quite possibly. And it usually mm-hmm. typically has something to do with the kind of attitude my female characters exhibit in said mm-hmm. story. Do you know what I mean? Like the are, so they're almost policing the behavior of your oh, characters. It's just an odd experience. It's yeah, an interesting yeah. dialogue and I think an important dialogue to have. I think we should be talking about stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's just one of the things that I I found I find interesting around books. Mm. Because you're bringing yeah. something, you're bringing all of your own preconceived notions about social uh, behavior into the book. I, I, I would never occur to me, it would never occur to me to walk up to someone uninvited and give a negative opinion about something they've created without no. them actually going no. and asking for it. It would never occur to me because it, it the few times it's happened to me, uh, they have been brutal. The few times it's happened to me it has been so earth shattering and inappropriate. And, you know, I had someone come up to me at an opening of a show one time and, and really wanted to corner me in the, in the corner of the room and tell me everything that was wrong with the show and was using words like amateur. And it was just horrendous. And they were a person of authority. They were an artistic director from another company that we were hoping would buy this show. And so it was, it was really, really hard. And so I was, trying to be polite, you know, as much as I could be polite, but it was just crushing me. I just can't imagine doing that. It is such a weird thing. You came up to me after a play one time and... Did I do that? No, 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 no. no, (laughs) You can't imagine doing it, Robert. You did it to me. No, no, it wasn't that. No, because we have very open dialogue, Robert and I. Anyway, he was like my first ever dramaturg, and Uh he's like kind of my professional mentor in like some ways. We we got a fluid relationship. Kind of. Kind um, of playwriting-wise. Yeah, I guess, like, for not theater. Not fiction-wise at all. But um, the conversation... You're more my mentor fiction-wise. <laughs> We're trading. Oh, that's trading. so nice. Hot, it's so symbiotic. <laughs> um, but with regards to the name of my theater company, you were like, oh, I don't oh, know, yeah. because, yeah, yeah. like, a, on grant applications, yeah. Poverty Call, but just, it has a it's kind a of... It's a beautiful name, but this is, this is the, I have to say it now that you have it on the table. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a beautiful name. I find, as a, someone who runs a company called Artistic Fraud of Newfoundland, <laughs> that I didn't name. You didn't pick that name. I didn't pick that name. Thank you, Jill Kyle and Cristalli. <laughs> I inherited that name, and a lot of people, like, we still get people coming up to us and telling us how they love that name, but I, I find I find that with a lot of young companies, particularly young companies here in Atlantic Canada, I won't even say Newfoundland, but Atlantic Canada, mm-hmm. a lot of young theater folks name their 
um, they dismissively you I don't think Poverty Cove is dismissive but a lot of young theater folks name their companies dismissively or they like you know for example fantastic company in and they changed the name for this for reason <laughs> fantastic company in Halifax that are currently called 2B uh, Christian Barry and Anthony Black whose their work travels all over the country all over the world fantastic stuff their first years in in in, um, in uh, operation they were calling themselves bunnies in the headlights so it's dismissive right it's yes, like oh we don't yeah. know, we don't know what we're doing yeah it's like calling we're yourselves half ass theater years exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, I was trying to be subversive though wasn't mm. I Vancouver I'm Vancouver they do it like they're so good at it right they like have the, so much more the electric company there, and yeah. Boca de Lupo and all their companies it's are it's sunny over there that's what it is <laughs> you are so much more sunshine if, if winter doesn't finish up soon I don't know when this podcast is going out <laughs> oh really <laughs> hopefully it has yeah. stopped raining and snowing at that point but I guarantee I it will not happen. <laughs> I was at my real estate uh, lawyer's office one day, and he was we were just doing up some uh, paperwork, and he said this thing to me. He said, but, uh, you know, I'm familiar with, with, with your work. Why can't you write something like, like Anne of Green Gables? <laughs> so I saw our Eliza, and I was thinking, I was hoping it would be more Anne of Green Gables. Oh. I was like, yeah. Have you seen the weather outside? <laughs> Like if I grew up on a sandy beach yeah. rather than a rocky kelp-covered land wash, I would probably be writing different things. Be writing sunnier stuff. I would yeah. never ask you to write anything different. You know that. I think, in a weird way, it's also uh, paying homage to all the colonization. For sure. So... For sure. We Don't are, change your name. Yeah. You be who you're going to be. You and you know what? Good, far be it, far be it for be anyone. Yet. No one has ever said that Robert Chafe has got all the answers, <laughs> including Robert Chafe. So never listen to me. I'm always looking for a catchy title for the podcast. <laughs> so this one might be Robert Chafe has got all the answers. <laughs> I don't know. So Robert Chafe doesn't have all the answers. <laughs> now that you've mentioned colonization, though, yeah. it, makes, it, it does lead into a book question because I want to ask you about Colony of Unrequited Dreams. Sure. In that, I, that to me, again, is so fascinating, the idea of taking someone else's novel uh-huh. and turning it into a play. And I mean, if there's a short list of the great Newfoundland novel, Colony of Unrequited Dreams should be definitely Up on there. there. Yeah. So, like, what was that process like to take somebody else's novel and turn it into your play? Uh, terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying, mostly because uh, the very reason why we decided to do that book uh, ended up being the very reason why it was such a challenging thing to do. The very reasons, I should say. The fact that it was such an epic kind of storytelling, the fact that it, it evoked time and place in such a beautiful way, all became challenges to mm-hmm. execute the theater. And the big challenge for me as a writer was the reason why we wanted to do it, and we thought it could work great as a theater piece, is having Joey and Sheila on stage together. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, Joey exists out in the world, and Wayne's version of Joey exists in, in the book. And Sheila, who was completely Wayne's creation, and then when you you start to adapt the book and start to put it on stage, you realize you have about a tenth of the dialogue from yeah. the actual, and that's being generous, a tenth of the dialogue that you actually need to make the play. And so then you're staring at the possibility of looking at a character like Sheila Fielding that is, you know, in terms of Canadian fictional characters in the last 25 years again she's up there she's yeah. top of that list and then having to look at little old, little old me Robert Chafe from Ghoul's Newfoundland uh, trying to to uh, somehow craft dialogue for that character that will sit alongside of the dialogue that Wayne has written for that was absolutely terrifying I bet yeah, yeah. but you know you power through uh-huh. <laughs> It's interesting that we're having this conversation, you know, because uh, I'm not going to get too heavily into this, but I'm in another another kind of deep up to my chin. Uh, Say it. <laughs> deep up to my chin. It's peri- exciting. Period of absolute terror about uh, about that kind of stuff, about my my abilities and the limits of my abilities, and so it, it's just it's making me remember that I did feel that way about comedy eight years ago, and I kind of got through it. So that's thank you for asking that question because <laughs> okay. maybe I'll get through it again. Maybe <laughs> because currently you're in the process of adapting. Are you allowed to say? Yeah, no, of course. We're we're adapting uh, Kathleen Winter's Annabelle. Oh um, wow! And uh, that is another. Yeah, yeah. And so we're turning it into a musical. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> Which is That's so exciting. Uh, kind of crazy, and uh-huh. so we're at the very very beginning uh, stages of that. So that's one of the things that's on my desk currently uh, that I'm I'm uh, up to my chin with and kind of gasping for air and hoping the water doesn't go any higher yeah. because I'm feeling like I'm just touching the bottom with my toes and it's feeling a little scary. 
<laughs> but is, you know, yeah. uh, it's good. I mean, I'm actually being quite sincere about that. It's actually good to be reminded uh, in talking about this that I did feel that way about Colony mm-hmm. because right now it feels quite insurmountable and terrifying. And right. uh, but you've done it. But before? I did, I've done it so before. And do I, it I felt that way about Colony, and it, and it kind of worked out okay. So, and I think like um, as a topic for a podcast, something that Robert and I both share and are really committed to is this idea of like collaborating cross-discipline like he yeah. adapts literary fiction uh-huh. for the stage and he writes literary fiction that might possibly be adapted by someone else i do that we also like support other uh disciplines like we, we talk about music right. a lot yeah. and things like that some of our friends are like you know that's st john's i mean that's, yeah. that's st john's but it is something that like i think there was I've been giving the same speech or spiel for the last little bit. I think there was like an uh, artificial divide that kind of uh, manifested in in the recent past, whereby the disciplines weren't collaborating with each other as much as they had prior. Mm. And I think these kinds of things occur, unfortunately, when we start having to like financially like um defend ourselves like uh-huh. as like an art form one of the things that i always when newfoundland was and we're not far off that bottom of the barrel in terms of this ongoing debate within government about you know us being quite high per capita in terms of art spending and maybe that may be true when you actually look at the buildings and stuff they're supporting you know for a population of a half a million people but when you actually look at the actual money that's going into the hands of artists primary creators we're still and that's the message we keep on trying to pass on to the government we're still quite low um, uh, in terms of the national scale well it's amazing given the the economic realities that we deal with here that we have this level of you know lively arts community and you know people just working their guts out to to create so much without a lot of the structures of support that maybe exist i think that's you know we we always try to say it and you know what's happening in newfoundland st john's certainly but what's happening in newfoundland is really really special Mm. and it happens sorry everybody it happens despite public policy yeah i would make the argument that the reason our literary community as an example continues to deliver well above like any expectation with regards to the caliber of the work that we're putting out there like newfoundland labrador has a really lovely international reputation in the literary community is because of us and i don't mean like trudy and robert and megan i mean as a group we all kind of support and mentor each other mm-hmm. do you know what i do we have a bunch of authors that um support other authors in the community and that like kind oh, of yeah. moves it's, it yeah. moves it well, like we're reading true. each yeah. other's drafts yeah. and yes. like yeah. commenting and giving feedback and giving support even just being like excited for the person mm-hmm. when you find out that they got their yeah. book deal like that kind of thing doesn't necessarily like exist in the same in the same form as it does here there's something really special I about think as well that the literary arts are one art form that benefits greatly from um, the autumn culture that we have. Hmm. I think it benefits greatly from because you you know the writers here obviously can access any literary literary work they want to. Like Toronto authors don't get more access to fine novels yeah. than we get. We get you know we can get them right. Yeah. So your access to reading material isn't different. But what is different is the fact that you are in a very specific place and the voices that emerge in the writers here are very, very specific and unique to the vast majority of writers, the vast majority of readers that will end up picking up those books. And and that there's a, a confidence that comes with that specificity of writing um, those Newfoundland novels that, you know, and also there's been great success. So you have someone like, you have Lisa and Michael mm-hmm. and Michael and the success that comes with those writers. Um, it, it, following in the path of that and looking at the, the success that can come from, uh, you know, Michael's work that's so specifically Newfoundland. 
um, that is uh, hugely, hugely influential and hugely encouraging. I think the writer's coming along behind, mm. I think. And honestly, it's not fit to leave the house for like five months. <laughs> well, there's that too. I guess I, and five is generous, really. I would January, say seven. Yeah. January, February, I really, I do, I do this thing sometimes when I have like a deadline in front of me where I do a binge or a bender and it's not a sustainable pace. Like no one's meant to write those many pages yeah. in that mm-hmm. period of time. But there wasn't a lot, like, I didn't really feel like I was missing things in the outdoors because no. it was not fit to leave the house. And yeah, can you so work in your time. house? You can work in your house, eh? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to get back. I haven't worked in my house in years, and I'm trying to get back to it. I'm I can't work really outside re- of my house. Oh, I have to go. Like, I usually, the last couple of years, I've really gotten in the habit of, um, of renting a place around the bay or boring oh, right. a house around the bay and going and locking myself in and not talking mm. to anyone and like going kind of stir crazy for a week or so. I also I have like a, a <clears throat> I have like a weird social support system. Uh, in, well, not weird. I have really lovely friends, so when I go on, <laughs> there's nothing weird about that. Weird about it. Like when I was finishing Squawk, it was the yeah. same thing. And when I was finishing the uh, small game hunting draft. Uh, it was the it was the exact same process whereby I kind of informed them mm-hmm. that I have to go into, you know, marathon writing for the next five mm-hmm. or six weeks, and literally they will they will bring by food. Oh, and, that's great! Like, oh, wow. uh, now I feel bad I didn't bring you food. Coffee, <laughs> we, we go for lunch. You actually are one of the people that makes me leave my house, which oh. is also helpful. That's, okay, that's okay, also good. 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 Sometimes I will not. <laughs> if I didn't make my word count for yeah. the day. So we've talked about how writers influence and support, whether by bringing food or more often just through their work, other writers in the writing community. What are books that have been influential to you? What are books that have had, you know, from here or from anywhere that have had a big impact on the person you became? Do I, I'll go. You go. I'm, I, I know all these answers. I feel like this is my jeopardy. Um, <laughs> When I was in university, I took a Newfoundland Labrador literature course, um, and Lisa Moore's Open uh-huh. was on the uh, syllabus, the reading list. And I remember very distinctly after reading the first three or four stories, uh, being like, that's it. And not that exact thing, because Lisa and I do very different, we have very mm-hmm. different styles. But here was this young Newfoundland woman writing about contemporary Newfoundland in a way that I hadn't met yet at that point because I didn't want to, I didn't only just want to be the fisherman's daughter in the rubber boots. I had already been that. Uh, And I I wanted to write about my own experience and the experience of the people that I cared for around me. It was the first time I had actually met it. Mm-hmm. So that was really kind of uh, monumental because it meant that I could I could be it. Carmelita McGraw came in and read a poem to one of my lit classes in I think like my second semester at Mum where I did my undergrad, and that was another moment where I was like, here are in live and in person mm-hmm. reading their work. Newfoundland women who are mm-hmm. writers, yeah, uh, and yeah. that was huge. Uh, Vonnegut speaks to my politics mm-hmm. and my like style of writing, so I read a lot of that. Uh-huh. Uh, Vonnegut was huge for me too. I yeah. I was like, yeah, poured through most of his stuff, pour over yeah. it, and I still remember, you know, uh, playwriting is a completely separate thing, but for. Me, I will say, I still, you know, the thing with Vonnegut that I always remember is a passage in, uh, and I've tried to replicate it a couple of times in my own way to no success, but there's a passage in um, Slaughterhouse-Five where he talks, where he does the history of World War Two in reverse, mm-hmm. and the last line is, Hitler turns into a baby, and I remember reading that and just my brain just cracked open. I was so amazed by that, what he was able to do with words. It was incredible. But for me, um, for me... Uh, I find that 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 kind of experience of having my like kind of being dazzled by um, dazzled by a story or dazzled by a technique or my brain kind of firing uh, I wouldn't say it's a common experience but it happens way more often than actually being emotionally moved mm-hmm. um, and I would say that's true for theater as well and so I it, the, the, the the plays that that I remember and that I love are ones that kind of don't crack my head open to sort of crack my heart open to kind of mm. shake me. 
uh, because I, I feel like I'm a very jaded theater person now. You know, I've watched a lot of shows, and it's hard to get me right. Yeah. Um, and 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 in some ways, I'm I'm a less of a jaded writer, a less of a jaded reader, but somewhat as well. And so I remember the first time I encountered a book that moved me. It's probably like 16, 15, I love 16. It. I don't think I've heard this and, story. And uh, probably 15 or 16, a friend of mine recommended... Um, uh, was I that young? No, I was older than that. And a friend of mine recommended uh, 100 Years of Solitude. So I read 100 Years of I Solitude. Which, of course, I loved. And then I read, because I love that so much, I read in I Love in the Time of Cholera, which like mm. everybody reads in their first and second year of university. And I remember, again, that sec- there's a section in that book where they encounter each other at Christmas Mass. Uh, in the church and I read it and when I finished reading that paragraph I closed the book and I cried for five minutes oh. it just moved me so much and um, so that and that was the first time I'd ever experienced that with a book it's the uh-huh. first time you know I was used to having that experience watching movies TV I, I didn't have much plays in my, much theater in my life at that point but that was the first time reading a book I had that experience mm-hmm. and it's happened very seldom since and the other book that I will talk about bring up her name again that did that to me was February Lisa's February oh, yeah. there's a second I remember very clearly there's a section where uh, where she's in bed and her new lover is in the bathroom and she mutes on what uh, her husband must have went through when the rig is going down to mm-hmm. really talk about it. It's so stunningly beautiful, the writing, but also the, uh, yeah, it's just, a, and, and I, I, I cried. I closed the book and I, I had to stop reading and I cried and cried and cried. And then, and so, so those are the moments in, uh, um, and if I had to say like what I would love to be able to manifest as a writer of both plays and, and uh, fiction would be that doing that being able to do that is magical to me I just don't mm. I feel like I have to uh, just because the question is like books that have influenced you or writers that have influenced you I feel like uh, I read a lot of Murakami he would be there mm. with Vonnegut mm-hmm. Wind Up Bird Chronicles was like a really big book in my life I was living in Asia at the time and I started reading this like Japanese author uh-huh. and it just really kind of and he does that magic realism mm-hmm. but also in this like measured also very detailed mm-hmm. like you don't realize that you're listening to someone cook pasta and open a beer and <laughs> rub the cat's head and yeah. it's all very entertaining and also Zadie Smith mm-hmm. is oh, like yeah. someone who I think is like pretty well she does in white teeth mm-hmm. I would like to do that, yeah, 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 yeah. but not like that. Not like that. But you like your, to be able to. You, you like to do yeah. your version. Yes. Of your version. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying every time I write to do my version of that. I think <laughs> whatever that may be. Guys, this has been great. Um, this has been a wonderful, wide-ranging discussion. We've touched on so many things. So many I didn't things. Think we were going to. Uh, and our time is up now. But thank you so much for coming here and doing this and talking about books and everything. Woo-hoo. Books thank and you. everything. Books and everything. That wraps up my conversation with Robert Chafe and Megan Coles. Really hope you enjoyed joining us for it. If you're interested in checking out any of the books that either of them talked about in this episode, go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, click on the Shelf Esteem link, and it'll take you to a blog where I post all the books that we talk about in every episode of the podcast. I'll be back again in a couple of more weeks with some more great guests. It's just like book club, except you have to supply your own snacks. Until we meet again, read a great book and build your shelf esteem.